Hey, everyone. Welcome to the weekly show where we take a look back and forward at some of the biggest news stories affecting the sport we love. Whether it's a broken home run record, a famous player's birth, or a major franchise trade, we'll have it all covered. I'm Jeff Lambert, and this is This Week in Baseball History. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. If you're accessing this podcast, that means that you already know about Rounders, A History of Baseball in America, our main show, and that you've signed up as an exclusive email member. So I do want to start off by saying thank you so much for continuing to support both of these projects as they grow. Now for this show, This Week in Baseball History, it will always consist of three separate parts. We'll always start with our history quick hits, where we look back at memorable dates in baseball history that occurred this very week. Then we'll transition into our focus story, which breaks down further one of this week's historical baseball moments. And finally, we'll finish with our current news segment, where we look at the top stories affecting baseball now. So let's get the show going. We're going to start with memorable historical moments that happened this week. Yesterday, November 1st, the National League voted Brooklyn catcher Roy Campanella the league's most valuable player. It will be the first of three times that he wins such an award. 71 years ago today, the Braves traded Hank Aaron to the Brewers for outfielder Dave May and a minor league pitcher to be named later. Aaron went on to finish his major league career in Milwaukee, the same place where he started it back in 1954. On November 4, 1976, we saw the first mass market free agency re-entry draft. It was held at New York's Plaza Hotel. Among some of those first free agents available were Reggie Jackson, Joe Rudy, Don Gullett, Raleigh Fingers, Don Baylor, and Willie McCovey. On November 6, 1974, Mike Marshall becomes the first relief pitcher to win the Cy Young Award. Iron Man Marshall set major league records with 106 appearances and 208 innings pitched in relief for the National League champion Dodgers. And that concludes this week's recap in baseball history. Let's move into our next segment, the focus story. We're going to take a deeper look at the birth of the MLB's free agency system. Now, today's fans, we take the free agency system as just the normal part of baseball. Players move from team to team. They're free to sign with whoever they want. And it has always been this way. But free agency as we know it now is a relatively new development in baseball history. See, baseball's modern free agency system began due to a landmark ruling in 1975 by the late Peter Seitz, who was an independent arbiter. Seitz was part of this three-person board, and they had a representative from the owners, they had one from the players, and he was the independent entity. That board got together and they determined that veteran pitchers Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally should become free agents after playing a full season without signed contracts. So when sites ruled in favor of the players in this case, the MLB owners panicked. This was a new system. 
They worried that most players would become free agents after that first year, and it would just create chaos because players would be moving around everywhere constantly. And the owners were against this. They did not want this to happen at first. So the owners negotiated a compromise system with the players that allowed them to become free agents under two conditions. Number one, their original or current contract had to expire first, and they had to accumulate at least six years of major league service time before becoming a free agent. So this was the original system that was created to address the very real issue for the players of having the freedom to be able to move around and be able to be compensated for your value. Remember, up until this point, for the most part, players were really owned by their teams for the lifetime of their careers. You didn't see a lot of player movement outside of trades, and you were beholden to the franchise that had you. That meant that you were paid whatever they thought your value was for the most part, and it really limited you in terms of being able to capitalize on your talent. This free agency system, this first uh, iteration of it, really changed everything. So the system obviously looked a lot different. As we said, it's the beginning of an experimental process for baseball, one that the owners pushed back on initially and the players wanted to see happen. We see the initial rules that are created, but how would players go about being selected or uh, begin the negotiation process with teams? That also looked a lot different. So instead of having a classic system or a progressive system that we see now, I guess I should say, where players are free to talk to whatever teams court them. Uh, it was different. Baseball first used what was called a re-entry draft. And basically what that looked like was every MLB team would have the right to bid for a player that became a free agent that offseason. And a player could only be drafted by a maximum of 12 clubs. So MLB teams each had a draft order, uh, a number that they drafted at. And if that player reached 12 clubs that were interested in him, the other teams couldn't bid on that player. Now, if a player was drafted by three or more teams, only those teams could negotiate with him. And if the player was drafted by two teams or fewer, then he could talk with any of the ball clubs. So basically, the more baseball clubs that wanted you, the more limited uh, your contract negotiations could be. So if a lot of teams wanted you, only those 12 could actually talk to you about being able to sign you. And if there was less interest, then obviously more teams would be able to approach you and be able to negotiate what that contract would look like. So that's the system that we found ourselves stepping into during this, this uh, you know, going into the 1976 MLB season. And that first free agency draft class, it was absolutely loaded with notable players. You had Hall of Famers Reggie Jackson, you had Raleigh Fingers, and then you had solid standout position players like Dave Cash, who was a second baseman. We had outfielder Gary Matthews, we had pitcher Bill Campbell. All these guys and several others were projected to immediately impact all of the pennant races in the 1977 season. These guys are moving to these different clubs. We're seeing a big shift in talent to different clubs. And so this is different. This is different than the original mindset of how MLB teams worked. Remember, both MLB executives and even the heads way up in the Players Association didn't really favor having a pure free agency system. They didn't think it would be good for baseball, but they felt this was an incremental step that would help. 
So by including that system, like I said in the beginning, where you had this, you have to wait six years to be able to declare for free agency, they were trying to ensure that only a few players would be available each winter. And the hope was that the demand would increase for those players who are now moving into their veteran status of their careers, and that would push up their salaries higher and higher. And this original system mostly worked. It did have its flaws, and you see that there were revisions made along the way to the system that we have in place now. So the players certainly benefited from this new way of being able to control their own destiny. But not every MLB executive was a fan of this new free agency system. And I think the poster boy for that was Oakland Athletics owner Charlie Finley. Finley was in a tough spot once this new system was passed because he was set to lose eight of his players to free agency that year. And he knew it was going to completely tank his team. So he went on a public relations spree just completely railing against this new free agency system. He had an interview with the Sporting News, and he said, I thought this was a good quote, he said, quote, what the owners are doing is stupid. They're going to bankrupt themselves, end quote. Finley was so upset with this change in terms of how baseball's operations worked that he ended up selling the team just three years after the free agency system was implemented, and then he ended up leaving baseball entirely, never returned uh, as an owner after that. So we fast forward to today. We know that free agency, the whole free agency system has become vital to the sport. We have a whole industry around promoting and analyzing our hot stove system. And it's changed the entire landscape of how teams are built. And it's really helped baseball turn into the billion-dollar industry it is today because it became a way for the, uh, for the league to be able to market their players in addition to marketing their teams. So who knows what baseball would be like without free agency? We may never find out. I'd be interested to hear from you on your thoughts about how baseball evolved uh, using a free agency system. If you think it was a positive or a negative thing, you can leave a comment right in the newsletter that you received, and we can have a conversation about it. I would encourage you to do that. If you want to read more about the MLB's free agency system origins, there's an excellent article from the Baseball Hall of Fame that I am including as well in the email. I would encourage you to check it out. It is excellent. Now let's transfer over into the third part of our episode, current MLB news. Before we begin, I just want to quick, quickly mention, you know, this is the time of year where, oh my goodness, things are moving so quickly with the World Series and what stories do we pick? You know, it, it almost becomes an exercise of checking every couple of hours before uh, being able to put these things out. I chose three that were relevant as of the beginning of this week. Certainly things may have changed. Bear with me. <laughs> so let's go into our first top story of this week. Major League Baseball cancels their 2022 Korea Series. Major League Baseball is canceling their 2022 Korea Series that had been scheduled for next month in December. The league cited a contractual issue with a local promoter as the reason for canceling this series. According to an article from MLB Trade Rumors, in late August, the MLB and the Players Association announced the creation of this new Korea Series. The event would have pitted Major League players against players from the Korea Baseball Organization in a four-game exhibition as a way to grow the sport globally. 
The article also stated that, quote, there's no indication the cancellation of the upcoming event has any bearing on longer-term plans, although it still comes as a notable disappointment to many fans inside South Korea, end quote. The event was set to kick off in just over two weeks' time, and the first game was actually scheduled for November 11th. So we'll see if baseball is able to successfully reschedule this. I think Korea is one of the uh, places where the sport is growing the fastest, so it certainly is vital for building a global fanship for baseball as a whole. Our second story, the World Series tickets and the outrageous prices that are being charged. Tickets for this year's World Series are fetching some of the highest prices in Major League Baseball history. According to an article from the Delaware News Journal, tickets to Philadelphia Phillies home games have reached an average cost of more than $3,200. That is the second highest total that we've seen in baseball history. In an interview with StubHub spokesperson Adam Bedelli, he stated, quote, We've seen tremendous demand from baseball fans during the playoffs. This year's ALCS and NLCS saw 36% higher ticket sales per game on StubHub compared to the 2021 championship series. Excitement is already strong for the World Series, especially in Philadelphia, and we're seeing that fans are willing to pay compared to games before this. Now, really high ticket prices, they're really no surprise considering the teams that are playing in this year's Fall Classic. We know that the Astros are looking to defend their title. We know that the Phillies haven't been to the World Series since 2009. So you have two clubs with very invested fan bases wanting to see these games in person. Story number three, the future of umpiring. As baseball evolves, so does the rule of the umpire. We have an automated strike zone system that's going to be implemented as soon as 2024, and this could be one of the last World Series that we see where umpires are doing the calling of balls and strikes. There was a really good article that was recently published by the New York Times that released an interactive web game with the tagline, Now it's your turn behind the plate. Are you more accurate than a major league umpire? This was a really neat experience that I really enjoyed playing in my browser. It gives you this perspective. You take on the perspective of an umpire, and you can see if you can make the right call in pressure situations. And the whole point of this simulation was to show you just how hard it can be for human umpires to make these calls, especially in high-pressure situations. So I would be interested to hear from you. What do you think the future of umpiring holds? Are we going to see more robots behind the plate? Will human umpires still have a place in baseball? What do you think the balance should be? Please take a moment to let me know your thoughts in the comments. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all for this edition of This Week in Baseball History. Be sure to check back next week for more memorable moments and current news and updates from around the league.